Welcome to In Layman's Terms, a podcast dedicated to discipleship and putting scripture to use in our daily lives. I'm your host, Todd Seifert. I'm the Communications Director for the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church, comprised of approximately 1,000 churches in Kansas and Nebraska. As the title of this podcast suggests, I'm not ordained clergy, so what I share comes to you in layman's terms. I have more than 20 years of experience teaching the Bible to everyone from teens to 90-somethings, and I'm excited to share what Scripture has to say to us in today's society, and I love to tell stories of how people live their faith. Some episodes focus on a person or church doing great things to serve as the hands and feet of Christ. Some episodes include interviews with experts who can help us along our faith journey. And other episodes include some short reflections on Scripture. Thank you for joining me. recording, it's been about two and a half months since the death of George Floyd. We initially saw protests and calls for action to stop the unnecessary death of black people in cities all across the country. And though some protests continue, most markedly in Portland, Oregon, they clearly aren't as pronounced or as frequent as they once were. The time that's passed has provided a chance for reflection and learning. It's been a chance to watch movies and documentaries that educate. There's been a chance to read books on such topics as white privilege or historical moments in our nation's past. There's been a chance to ponder where we've gone so horribly wrong. The the thing that has been most pronounced for me since uh, his death that turned out to be, (laughs) it was a a surprise to me, was really the, the silence here. That's the Reverend Kathy Williams. And the here is the community of Holton, Kansas, located along U.S. Highway 75, about 30 miles north of Topeka. Silence. At a time when many other communities were angered, upset, saddened, Williams wasn't hearing any of that. It really plays on the emotions. It it was this um, period of time where I'm in a period of shock and grief and anger and I'm dealing with all those emotions, but then when I'm, when I'm leaving my home and I'm going out, no one is talking about it. Let's pause here for just a moment because I want to be perfectly clear. Kathy isn't criticizing or calling out the people of Holton or the people of Holton First United Methodist Church. She's merely stating what she felt and experienced in the days after George Floyd's death. When I've been in other places and I've lived other places, it, it, I realized that there were opportunities for me to be able to gather with other people, to be able to um, share the grief and to lament together with other people. And um, where I am now and in this context, that became different for me with with his death, where had I been in one of the other appointments or places where I've lived, you know, I, I belong to uh, Topeka Jump or a Justice Matters or NAACP or there was a justice ministry at my church. And so it really changed. It has really changed the way that I have journeyed through this period. In other words, this African-American pastor and her African-American husband were kind of isolated. They weren't mistreated. In fact, Kathy told me people in the congregation made a point of checking in on her to make sure she was okay. But she didn't have the support system of other people of color. 
To illustrate, of Holton's approximately 3,300 residents, only 1.1% identify as black. And in a small community like Holton, the kinds of groups who usually would speak up and lead community conversations about such subjects, like Topeka's Jump or Justice, Unity, and Ministry Project, and Lawrence's Justice Matters Group, they don't exist there. The reality is Holton is no different than the vast majority of communities across the Great Plains Conference or in many of our other United Methodist churches. We're extremely white, and in many cases, unfortunately, mum on the subject of race. Is it because people don't care? Yeah, maybe. But more likely it's because people just don't know what to say. They're fearful of saying the wrong thing. They're concerned about doing something insensitive. In this episode of In Layman's Terms, we're going to talk about, well, talking about race. I'm going to share Kathy's story. We'll talk about resources available from the denomination's General Commission on Religion and Race. And we'll talk about how relationships at the neighborhood level and beyond might be a way of helping us break the silence and move on to better tomorrows for people of all colors. Again, I want to be perfectly clear. This is not a criticism of the people of Holton, Kansas, because there are many more communities like Holton out there in our two states, filled with white people who are not comfortable talking about race, or any deep, difficult subject for that matter. I say that because I used to be that way. I felt awkward going to visitations at funerals, for example. I once felt like I had to say something more than just a simple, I'm sorry. So I tried to expand on the fine qualities of the deceased and would usually feel badly about my lack of articulation to a grieving friend. I never felt like I said the right things. I think for a lot of people, people like me, white people like me, we just don't know what to say. Here again is Kathy Williams. My husband said, well, maybe people just don't know what to say. And I had to think about that. And as, and as I thought about it, I said, well, maybe that, that is true. You know, race is just such a difficult topic to, for us to engage each other. And depending on where we are and, and, and how, you know, it's just a difficult. And so sometimes people are a little hesitant to bring up things or to say things or how am I going to respond? And so I thought that was fair. I said, okay, maybe people don't know what to say because I know that they're caring people because they've shown us care in so many other ways mm-hmm. and they've done it well. So I knew that it wasn't that, but just trying to figure out where the silence, that, that really impacted me the most, if I could say, just the silence <laughs> around me. And it just caught me off guard. I just wasn't expecting there to be so much silence. So how do we talk about race? For many of us, the process starts with education. Now, not that I'm some shining example, but let me tell you a little bit what I've done since the death of George Floyd. I binge-watched the fabulous PBS documentary series Eyes on the Prize. It's a series that details the fight for civil rights and equity from 1954 through the 1980s. I've read books such as White Fragility by Dr. Robin DiAngelo, which challenges white people like me to truly examine their race, many of us for the first time. I've read the book The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, which shares facts about how lending policies and legislation purposely separated black people from whites across this country. The author is actually scheduled to be my guest on an episode later here in August. And I read Wilmington's Lie by David Zucchino. This book details how a North Carolina city went from being one of the most integrated towns in America, a shining example 
to just another heavily segregated town based on efforts of proud white supremacists. Literally, they called themselves white supremacists. They were proud of it. And I've also read the books by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, Stamped from the Beginning and How to Be an Anti-Racist. I actually read those books at the end of last year, and I felt like they really helped me get started on this process of educating myself better about race. I admit that I've really only started to grasp how deeply ingrained racism is in the DNA of America. But I fully understand that learning is finally the beginning, at least for me, maybe for you. So what do people like me, white Christians, do to break this cycle? I pose that question to Garlinda Burton. She's the soon-to-be interim general secretary of the United Methodist Church's General Commission on Religion and Race. Well, I think for white Christians especially, it's very important to continue not only learning uh, and reading, although reading and learning is is one step, but if you just read a book and have a, a discussion group, that's not the work. That is the work to help catch one up with what one may not know. Um, because if to be a white person in this country is to be um, someone who doesn't have to deal with race on a daily basis. You don't, it, your race is not, uh, is, is not the subject of uh, scrutiny on a daily basis, and that is not true for people of color. So the first thing I think is the learning. I think a second thing is to examine one's own prejudices. Like when you see uh, what happened with the George Floyd, when you see people marching against police violence, when you hear voices in the church saying that the church is racist because instead of, or along with being defensive, because some of us are going to get defensive about that, and particularly white folks are going to get defensive because this is relatively new. This is not a world that you've had to inhabit, so it's going to, it's going to smack, and it's going to, it's going to hit hard. Ask the question, why am I reacting this way, and what is it that's bringing this up for me? Those kinds of probing questions are also suggested by Robin DiAngelo in her book, White Fragility. The idea is to help white people explore their reality to see how it measures up with the reality of people of color. And they are not the same. The author uses the analogy of a birdcage. If you stand near and lean into the birdcage, you may only see one bar, to the point where you might ask yourself, why doesn't that bird just fly away, fly around that one pole? But when you step back, when you take a broader perspective, only then do you understand the bird's circumstance. It can't easily escape. It's caged in. Garlinda Burton's point is not that educating oneself is a bad thing. Indeed, it's a critical first step in confronting racial injustice. What she wants us to understand, when I say us, I mean white people, is that we haven't had to confront race very often, if at all, until now. She continues now with her explanation of how white people will have to do the heavy lifting if we truly are to become an anti-racist society. What don't I see? Who don't I talk to? Who are in my circles? Understanding that all people of color don't speak with the same voice, but what, what world is going on on the other side of town that I don't have to deal with? And I think that does start with some relationships. Now, it's not that we ask that we could get, white, get white people to, to let people of color do their lifting and bear our souls and cry and weep and tell you all of our stories, but it is to learn what's going on. Learn about, are there inequities in the school system? What's going on in the police department? Why is the church 
uh, so segregated in the way it functions and ask how I participate in that. Have I ever raised an issue about why we don't have more people of color in our churches and our communities in my school system? Why don't we have more people of color as teachers and preachers and mayors and, and you know, representatives and uh, council people? So doing that work. And then I think the most important thing is that uh, white people and all people, but white people particularly have to commit to an anti-racism lifestyle. And that means um, it's hard work because it means interrupting racism when you see it. So it's not laughing at Uncle John's joke at the dinner table. You know, that's a little thing, but it's to say, you know what, as a Christian, that to me, that's not funny. You know, it demeans a, a person who is created in the image of God. And it, it means checking our own biases. You know, when we, we have them, when we, we see those biases to check them. And finally, it means to support and um, support financially as well as in other ways, people of color in a way that lifts up and empowers uh, people of color to, to be partners in the anti-racism work. Anti-racism is a term not easily understood by a lot of people, regardless of color. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is atop the bestseller list right now, and I highly recommend it. He, as an African-American man, uses his own background, from elementary school through his college years and into adulthood, to share his journey toward recognizing that being anti-racist means much more than not discriminating against another person out of prejudice. It means identifying policies and societal norms that suppress people of color, and then doing something about it. Garlinda Burton explains that anti-racism is what Christ wants of all of us. Anti-racism is not making excuses for racism. It's not excusing other people. It's not explaining that I didn't mean it that way. Anti-racism is interrupting racism when it happens and um, living an anti-racism lifestyle. And those things are not just politically correct. They are biblically correct. We are to be a people who are repairers of the breach and restorers of the streets. That is scriptural. And so the things that divide most of society are not supposed to divide us. We are supposed to be setting an example and not following a bad example that's been set in our society. And I think that's one of the hard things about racism. It is so, it is such uh, an emotional topic. It is such a source of shame and a source of pain in our society that we find it very difficult to talk about. And so something like this happens and we get all in a swirl. And then because it's very uncomfortable, many people will want to hope that this goes away soon and we don't have to talk about it anymore. But what we're learning is that the work is ongoing, just as um, as a, a follower of Christ, I have to work on my temper and I have to work on how I interact with people and my patients. Uh, Anti-racism is a muscle that we have to continue to exercise at home because uh, racism is so present in our society that it takes, it takes a lot of faith and a lot of persistence to resist and to, to confront it in a way that is um, constructive, and forthright and unyielding. 
And um, so it, it's hard work, but it's good work. And for me, it's work that I have to do and that I have to insist that other Christians do again if our witness to the gospel and what we say we believe is to have any meaning in this world, we have to walk our talk. And part of walking our talk is we got, we got to get rid of the stuff that divides us and that keeps us from seeing other people's true godly nature. And racism is one of those big things. So we have some hard work to do. When we come back to in layman's terms, we'll talk about what that work looks like through the continuation of our story with Kathy Williams. And we'll learn more about what that work looks like from the standpoint of the General Commission on Religion and Race. That and more when we come back in just a few moments. Matthew 28 tells us to make disciples of Jesus Christ. But how can you do that? You can help by providing some inspiration each morning to someone else. Just go to www.greatplainsumc.org slash daily devotions. Once there, you'll find a QR code and a link to a sign-up page. Pick your day and your topic. If you need some assistance, there's even a link to the Vanderbilt University Daily Lectionary. Follow the instructions for submitting your devotion, and you've done your part to help inspire and encourage others in their Christian walk. Again, that's www.greatplainsumc.org slash daily devotions. Help make more disciples today. Welcome back to In Layman's Terms. I'm your host, Todd Seifert. Today, we're continuing our exploration of racial justice, and in particular, we're exploring how we talk about race. Before the break, you heard Garlinda Burton from the General Commission on Religion and Race share that we have work to do. Much of that work has to come at the local church level. We started this episode with Kathy Williams from Holton First United Methodist Church. She talked frankly about the disappointment of the silence that she experienced right after the death of George Floyd. Kathy shared with me how she went about her work by discerning how to break that silence. I started out with a conversation with SPRC, actually. Uh, I, I tend to, to break things up into smaller groups. So first I start with conversations with those who have already identified themselves as wanting to be an ally with me. So I have some allies here. So that conversation began with them and um, sharing information. And of course, they are the ones who initially would check on me and um, how are you doing and so forth and they're the ones who will be honest in saying and open and, and they and they know that and they don't have the fear of being able to say I really don't get this but I get you and I love you and I'm going to take whatever steps I can to understand better the next step was to have a conversation with the SPRC and I initiated that conversation because I needed them to know I'm, I'm here as a black woman. I'm in this rural context. You all have been lovely to me, but I know that's not the case with everybody. And I have been in some of the towns around here when I've gone to visit where I've seen Confederate flags in people's windows. 
I've crossed the highway here where I've seen somebody in a truck with a huge Confederate flag in the back. So I know there's some different thoughts and not everybody's feeling me and not everybody's feeling us being here. And I said, so I just, I just want to put that out there. And, and I want you to understand that there's some fear for me. There's, there's fear when I know that my husband's going into certain areas around town, when I'm going into certain areas and I'm living with that fear every day. And, 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 and I don't think that they ever thought about that because they looked like they, like, we never thought about that. That's how the look was on their face. I mean, they were intently listening to me and they were taking it all in. But uh, you could tell and from their comments that they never realized that I was feeling that way because that's not what they feel. That's not what they encounter. They, they know, we know our community. We know the people here. You know, we've been raised, we've grown up here. Everybody knows everybody. We've got family. So I don't think it ever occurred to some of them that I would be having these feelings. And so I wanted to express that to them and I wanted to share and I wanted to let them know that I am getting ready to offer some sermons and I'm going to be, uh, the tone of those sermons will be like this. And I need to know that I have your support because I don't know what the response will be. And, uh, and I'm not presenting anything in an unloving way or whatever, but I was one of them to know I'm going to be telling some truth. I need to know that, that you're there for me when people come, as well as letting me know. Don't like keep things from me thinking that, well, we don't want to hurt her feelings or, oh, somebody said this because that sets me up as well because I don't, all this is going on and then I don't know that this is being said or people are feeling this way or people are responding this way. And so I said, so those are the, the things that I need from you, your support. And I need to know that you'll give me feedback and you'll let me know as you hear things. Kathy Williams, who I failed to mention is an elder in the United Methodist Church, also wanted to give the church an opportunity to show support. So she assembled a prayer vigil in the church parking lot. She gave the congregation permission to talk with her openly about racism. It was a chance to break the silence. I was so pleased that there were individuals from our congregation that came out to the prayer vigil, and we had it outside in the parking lot. Um, I took time to talk about that. I said, it's, it's been quiet, but, but what is helpful is I need to hear from you. And it's okay, How, wherever you are on the issue. I said, because as your pastor, that gives me guidance. I mean, when it's silence, it's, it's hard to know what you're thinking, what you're feeling, where you are with this. And, uh, and I, you know, and I shared with them that I have been so grateful for the care that they have shown uh, my family because they are a very generous and caring congregation. And I said, and another part of this care is journeying with us through this season and talking and sharing and allowing, you know, as we create space to, 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 to do that. And I felt it was important and I've been encouraging them and, and more of them have um, shared, not as many as I would hope. I would like to have more conversation. I would like to have more 
Um, but but there there was some response from that. And the ones who have actually shared with the most with me the most have been our younger <laughs> um, our younger members uh, who will come in and uh, strike up a conversation about it and just you know the passion they have and just so many things they didn't know and they're you know wanting to learn and they're reading this and uh, I'm listening to a black artists or I'm looking you know at uh, some other uh, some other members have said I'm really seeking to to watch more black movies look at black documentaries I'm, I'm I have found some materials that have been recommended you know to read and so those are ways that I see some people uh, taking an initiative uh, to be able to um, engage a little bit more and to understand and to grow. The United Methodist Church has an entire agency set up to help parishioners grow as anti-racists. The General Commission on Religion and Race, known as G-Corps, has been around since the merger of the Evangelical United Brethren Church and the Methodist Church in 1968. Think back to that time for just a moment. 1968. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated that year. African Americans had made great strides in the fight for civil rights. But even now, we're still nowhere near the concept of equity that Dr. King was fighting for. Here again is Garlinda Burton, sharing what G-Corps sees as its ongoing mission. The General Commission on Religion and Race uh, was created right after uh, the, uh, the union of 1968 um, to, to address institutional racism within the church. It was a time when we, uh, the, the former Methodist church and EUB churches were coming together to be united Methodist, but we had a racially segregated system in place, particularly with regards to African Americans. And so people who cared about uh, real unity and real Christian unity said, how can we be united if we are racially segregated and legally sanctioning uh, segregation and separation? So that's how G-Corps started um, to help the church address institutional racism. That is still um, uh, central to our mission we say that our mission is to help make the United Methodist Church as a Christian movement contextually relevant so that we will bring in more people, more diverse people, and more young people. We're bringing them to Christ and to have a relationship with Christ and to send them out into the world to be transformers, which is our calling as Christians. Of course, um, the Commission on Religion and Race has always been in the anti-racism, racial justice, um, and anti-oppression business. And we see our work as anti-racism very importantly placed in the context of addressing uh, oppression in the wider scope with a particular lens to anti-racism. So we've always been doing this work. We've been doing this work since 1968. So it's been interesting to watch um, a new awakening in the United States, particularly, but around the world to the, to the reality of racial injustice, that we live in a world and in a country, particularly where racial injustice is still a part of the framework. It has been with us since the beginning 
of what we call the United States of America. Racism has always been an issue and racial injustice, and it still is. How could racism still be an issue? It could be the fact that the first slaves landed on what is now American soil in 1619, more than 157 years before the Declaration of Independence declared that all men were created equal. But of course, that all men created equal wasn't really a thing, right? It wasn't really the case, at least if you had dark skin. It was 168 years before the U.S. Constitution was crafted that designated people of color to be only three-fifths of a person. Racial injustice is frankly just part of our American DNA. We have to admit that. We can argue against it all we want, but those arguments are false words. Our actions have never lived up to the lofty ideals that we celebrate every July 4th and that are in those most hallowed of documents. I think Burton is right when she says a lot of white people get defensive when talk of racial justice comes up. I told her I think it's because white people are afraid of loss. She gives the best answer I've heard yet to such a question. That is such an interesting question because it, 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 is, it is a conundrum and a, a contradiction. Because um, you taught, um, Robin D'Angelo has written this wonderful book about white fragility and we've talked a lot about white privilege and, and a lot of people get very defensive. Um, particularly white people. I don't have any privilege. I work hard for what I have. We all have, a, it's a level playing field. What do you mean privilege? But then you've said something really, really honest that in fact, there is something in the back of my mind that, that fears a loss of something. Well, if we're all equal and there's no racism, what are you losing? So there is an unconscious consciousness. There is a racial hierarchy. And so the first step is something that you said is about admitting that there, that one has privilege. And I don't know why we're so resistant to that in this country. We have a myth about you can be anything you want to be and pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. But if that were true, I know some very hardworking people of all races and they're not millionaires. So it can't just be working hard because if, if it, working hard made millionaires, everybody in my immediate and larger circle would be millionaires because most of the people I know work really hard. But the reality is that some, you know, there are some advantages that have been given to certain people because of their race, their class, their gender, and their status. What she's talking about is the concept of privilege. I've heard it said often, especially when I was working as a newspaper editor in St. George, Utah, that if people of color want to succeed, they really only need to work hard. They need to work harder. That's what America's all about. But it isn't that easy. Not if you have dark skin. One of the absolute best explanations about this concept, the reality that you can't always pull yourself up by your bootstraps, came in a 1967 television interview that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave to NBC correspondent Sander Van Oker. Here's a snippet from that interview. What is it about the Negro? I mean, every other group that came as an immigrant, somehow, not easily, but somehow got around it. Is it just the fact that Negroes are black? White America must see that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. Uh, that is one thing that other immigrant groups haven't had to face. The other thing is that the color became a stigma. American society made the Negroes color a stigma. America freed the slaves in 19... I mean, 1863, through the Emancipation Proclamation, 
of Abraham Lincoln, but gave the slaves no land or nothing in reality, and as a matter of fact, to, to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base. And yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger. It was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate, and therefore it was freedom and famine at the same time. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, oh, they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. But uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color a stigma and something worthless and degrading. That two-minute explanation was my personal aha moment somewhere around 2006. I had heard that interview once or twice before, but something really clicked for me when I heard it while researching an editorial that I was writing about economic exploitation of undocumented immigrants in southern Utah. Dr. King's words didn't match up exactly with the subject of that editorial, but I must have come back to watch that interview three or four more times because the explanation captivated me so much. Things just started to make sense to me, and in today's world, it's easy to see what Dr. King is talking about. It's really white privilege. Now, let's dispel some falsehoods right now. While it's true that many white people struggle to make ends meet and feel like they're marginalized despite putting in long hours of hard work, it's also true that many people of color also work hard and don't advance up the economic ladder. The difference is white people who face that obstacle don't also face the very real obstacle of their skin color but I said I wanted to dispel a falsehood. That falsehood isn't about who works harder. No, the falsehood is that privilege is a derogatory word. Privilege is defined as a right, immunity, or benefit enjoyed by a particular person or group of people beyond the advantages of most. That definition doesn't say anyone in particular is to blame, and it doesn't say anyone should be ashamed of it. Just thinking out loud here, but I think my fellow white brothers and sisters hear the word privilege and think they're supposed to be ashamed of it for some reason. Garlinda Burton gives me some perspective. She says that's not necessarily the case. Privilege is not a negative thing. Privilege is a good thing because it's people with privilege who have worked with people who have less to bring us this far, you know, uh, uh, on, on, lots of, on lots of issues. A great example is women's suffrage, which celebrates a milestone on August 18th, marking 100 years since ratification of the 19th Amendment that gave women the right to vote. Women couldn't secure that right for themselves. It was men in power being allies to help do that. The same thing with people of color. People of color in this country are a growing group, but we're still a smaller group than the white majority, so it takes white folks working together and seeing the vision of an equitable society. We work together to get there. And um, you don't lose when everybody has enough. I think that's the other thing we preach in this country right now. We have leaders who are preaching this. And even in our church, 
in the midst of COVID, we are, we are afraid that there's not going to be enough. I serve a God who has plenty and a God that blesses and a God that has given us enough if we would share it. I, I serve a God that has enough. And as a Christian, that's what I see. There is enough grace. There's enough justice. There's enough resources to go around. And so operating in that mentality of scarcity, again, I see that when I give into that kind of despair as being, uh, as being sinful and not trusting in God, there's enough. And we have to fight against the narrative that there's not enough. God's justice is abundant and God's resources are abundant. And I live in, in the place of that abundance. It doesn't mean I haven't had to tighten my belt during COVID, but it means there, I haven't missed a meal, as you could probably tell. So, you know, uh, and there's enough to share. Um, there's enough for everyone to have what they need. And we just have to believe that. If somebody gets, gets equal justice, it doesn't mean you're going to have less. Justice is not a pie, you know, that you get the, if you don't, gobble it up now you don't get a slice that's not the way it works our god is a god of abundance i firmly believe that do you when we return to in layman's terms we'll talk with two pastors in the wichita area who've made it part of their mission to connect people at the neighborhood level. And at its core is a faith that God provides an abundance of resources. We'll talk about the neighboring movement and how it can help us transform into an anti-racist society when we come back in a few moments. How does your church celebrate big events? How does it gather the community together? How does it sometimes introduce you to people you might not have known? Many times in the Great Plains, it's with a potluck dinner. And that's what we try to do with our podcast, Potluck. This is David Burke from the Great Plains Conference and host of Potluck, where we do, in audio form, all the things a potluck dinner does. Celebrate big events, gather the community, and introduce you to new and interesting people. Listen to Potluck, available at greatplainsumc.org. Welcome back to In Layman's Terms. I'm your host, Todd Seifert. In this episode, we're picking up our discussion about racial justice by talking about, well, talking about race. So far, we've talked to the Reverend Kathy Williams, a pastor in Holton, Kansas, and to Garlinda Burton, who as of September 1st will be the Interim General Secretary of the General Commission on Religion and Race of the United Methodist Church. Next, we're going to travel to Wichita, Kansas, to a neighborhood on the south side of town. It's not a ritzy group of homes. There's no gated community. It's known as South Central, or SOCI, and it's mostly recognized as being a home to prostitution and drug use. Two Great Plains pastors see it as so much more than that. So they've made it their home, and they've made it a ministry known as the Neighboring Movement. I talked to two leaders of the movement, Reverend Adam Barlow-Thompson, along with his wife, the Reverend Ashley Prescott Barlow-Thompson. In case you don't know them, both of them are white. 
Before we get into what the Nabry movement may mean for racial justice, you first have to understand what the Nabry movement is. Here's Adam Barlow Thompson. We really believe in the power of individuals to, when they know and, and participate in community using their, their giftedness, their God-given giftedness, we think people really come alive by that, that they're awakened by that, and that they also um, help strengthen their communities when they do that. And that, that work for us happens in many different, um, many different places. And so we do that in our neighborhood, which is in the South Central neighborhood of Wichita, which we call SOCI. Uh, the SOCI neighborhood is mainly defined by its needs and the things that are wrong with it. And so it's South Broadway in Wichita, which is where people, uh, it's known throughout Wichita as a place where you can you know, participate in prostitution and, and illegal drugs. And that's a very like common narrative for our neighborhood but we are trying to lift up that there's also people here who have interests, have skills, have talents, and that when we connect people through those, that it can strengthen a community. Uh, we also do that work in churches, and so we have cohorts of churches who participate in our, um, it's called the Good Neighbor Experiment. It's a nine-month uh, training, uh, or training experience where they do workshops, small groups, coaching, and all of that is to help them know how to neighbor where they live and then also neighbor in the setting of a local church. And then finally, we do that um, we, as, as what we call a movement. We think neighboring is a movement because it's simple, it's doable, it's universal, it's happening. Everybody is a neighbor, everybody has a neighbor. And so you can quickly think of what that means in your own life, like who those people are in your own life. And we try to encourage people through that. Um, we have a podcast that we do as well. We have um, neighboring tips that we send out weekly. And then we also do a lot of training, especially in the state of Kansas. We have some cohorts where we're training people in our brand of community organizing, and then they're doing that work in their local communities. Neighboring, at least in my opinion, is all about relationships. It's not only getting to know the people around you, but learning what their strengths are. What are their skills? In church vernacular, what are their gifts and graces? In simple terms, take a look at your block, your apartment building, your town. Don't think necessarily about the needs. Instead, ask yourself, what are the assets at our disposal here that can best be put to use for the greater good? Ashley Prescott Barlow Thompson shares what neighboring has taught her. I've learned as somebody who uh, grew up with the value of like independence and pulling myself up by my own bootstraps and um, you know that that concept in America that we have to do it on our own. What I learned when I started neighboring was that I have a lot of gifts and things that I can give, but I also have a lot of neighbors that can give gifts to me. And so I learned that um, there's a lot of joy and there's a lot, my life is a lot richer when I'm willing to get to know my neighbors in a meaningful way so that when I need help, they are there for me as much as I am there for them. My life has become just so much uh, better 
because my neighbors have different gifts than me and can help me with the things that I have needs in while I'm helping them with my, like with the things that I can bring to the table. So it's been for me very enriching to be a good neighbor and to learn more about myself and that I am still very independent, but I can also be interdependent and rely on others in a way that um, brings value to my life. And that sense of community, no, wait a second, it's more than a sense. That tangible connection with the community has paid dividends when it comes to caring for their son, Prescott. Something that's been really important to me as a mom is uh, the ways that my neighbors have come around my child and our family um, and helped raise him up. And so Prescott is one of two kiddos on our block. There's an infant and there's Prescott who's eight years old. And um, our neighbors, each of them have taken him in as a part of their homes and households and families in lots of different ways. So our neighbor Craig, he loves to build and he encourages Prescott to be curious and see what he's up to and join him in that in that passion. Our neighbor David works at Walmart and anytime there's an awesome clearance, Prescott's got a goodie bag coming from Walmart of fun new things. Our neighbor Susan takes him on walks. We have neighbors who, when their grandkids grow out of things, they get to pass those things on to Prescott. Neighbors that um, are waiting on the porch for him on Halloween because he better be coming by in his costume. <laughs> and neighbors that are going to check out what's going on in the in the block and make sure that he is safe. And so when he was littler, if he got past my driveway to the next neighbor's driveway, people were hollering, Prescott, you got to go back to your own yard. And even today, this um, last summer, he uh, learned how to ride a bike. And I'm telling you, he has never had a cheering squad like he did when he learned to ride that bike because our neighbors were out on the porch watching. And it is such a gift to know as a mom that there are other adults that are watching out to keep him safe, but also to love and cherish him. I had a great discussion with Adam and Ashley about the neighboring movement and what that looks like in a COVID-19 world, but we'll share that at a different time. My purpose for this discussion was how something like the neighboring movement can help break down barriers. How it can help us talk to each other, regardless of the color of our skin, to see how we can benefit from each other. Again, here's Adam. So we base all of our work out of the principles of asset-based community development, which um, has had some traction within the Great Plains United Methodist community over the last couple of years. And so we're really grateful for that. Uh, and, and a lot of that comes back to this idea of cultivating capacity in people to produce their own future. And you have to first assume that the people in all communities, regardless of race, age, ability, all that, have giftedness. And that when you give them permission and power to make their own choices, that that's the best option instead of trying to create or solve those problems for them. Um, and so with, within neighboring, what we've found, and actually it's been interesting, we've heard um, a couple of really amazing stories about how people have, have how people have interacted with their neighbors around uh, around race in the last couple months. Uh, a couple of those are on our our podcast, the neighbor next door, um, and so you can hear the full stories there. But uh, one is you know a neighbor who interacted with their neighbors across the street who have adopted black children, and so it's a neighborhood full of white folks and this one family with adopted black children. And the story of how the, a Black Lives Matter sign um, 
started conversation and helped create a safe place for those kids on that on that in that community or a neighbor who um lashed out at an asian american because she wasn't wearing a mask and there was a racial undertone to the interaction and what that looks like and how this this woman instead of she actually found a way to like seek reconciliation instead of just cutting that off which was another amazing story um and so there's there between covid and then the murder of george floyd and the the things that have happened since that there's just been the way that i i think of it is that there's a lot of energy in the world right now to have conversations and your neighbors are thinking about it it's at the tip of everybody's tongue and so if you are if you're intentional about neighboring eventually you end up hitting on one of these subjects that you're going to talk about race and and the way that our world's impacting or dealing with it right now and i think the both our our small groups that in our own personal lives and our neighboring life you know we grew up in a world where talking about race was taboo and you weren't supposed to do it and which made me feel like i'm not even supposed to think about it right and so that is it not we're realizing not a super helpful approach and so a lot of what we're doing is giving permission to let white people in particular fumble into this because people of color they actually know how to talk about it because they've been forced to their entire lives but white folks haven't and so a lot of what our groups are doing is giving a safe place for white people to not be perfect. We're not perfectly using all the right terms and saying the things the way that maybe everyone, you know, um, would would want to, but we're just saying we have to learn. We have to experiment and learn and fail forward. And so we're going to give each other a space to do that. Once the discussion gets started, it's important to keep the dialogue going. Here's Ashley some of us are really fortunate to live in neighborhoods that are racially diverse. And so we get to learn from and get and have real relationship with people who have a different experience of our country than maybe we do as white people. Others of us live in neighborhoods that are primarily white or communities that are primarily white. And I think that that brings another opportunity. One thing that we talk a lot about at the neighboring movement, but just in our own faith life is that um, when we care as faithful people about justice and making sure that everyone has enough and that the systems in our world are in place to give everyone access to what they need to have a thriving life. Uh, one of the ways we believe that um, you can make a big impact with your faith and with your desire to do justice is by starting with your real relationships. And so how do we, we're passionate um, as Christians about talking to other people who are in the same place in life with us, as us, like our privilege, our whiteness, our um, status as middle-class people. How do we talk to people that we have relationships with that have that in common with us um, and, and challenge and be curious and share a little bit about why we see the world the way we do and what we can do to be a part of a solution. So we really believe in this idea of um, kind of relational justice, that it, it's important to march, it's important to write to your Congress people, it's important to vote, 
it's also important day in and day out with the people you love and care about to have hard conversations so that we can move towards God's preferred future, towards the kingdom of God together. And so we do that with our neighbors and we do it with our family members and our friends. Um, but as we talk to our neighbors, um, it's as simple as we have a sign in our yard that um, talks about Black Lives Matter and our neighbors kind of interact with that. And some of them kind of give us a little jab about it. And we then say, great, let's talk about it. And um, it's important to us that in our everyday relationships, we're taking that leap of faith to be vulnerable and to have courage to say, I'm passionate about this and here's why. And a lot of times that leads to some really important faith conversations as well. And that's been meaningful to us. While the discussion is important, as we talked about earlier, White people have to move forward and become true allies for our black and brown brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't leave any efforts on the table to collect dust. It's just too important. Here again is Ashley. We need to rely on each other um, to do that work and not um, do the, the difficult thing of choosing our token friend who is a person of color who is black and ask them to be our expert or to teach us. Uh, instead, if we want to do the work of being a good ally and trying to make a difference in anti-racism in our culture, we need to say to other white folk, where do we need to learn? Why is it that we only have white friends? How do we work together uh, to move forward and um, do good work instead of relying on others, um, people of color, black people, to tell us, well, here's how you fix things. You know, if I heard someone say on, uh, I think on Twitter the other day, if you can Google and figure out all the symptoms of COVID, then you can Google and figure out all the symptoms of racism. <laughs> you don't need to find somebody who's already at a, a place in life where they're being discriminated against to tell you how to, you know, feel better about your privilege and about your white skin. And so that's been really um, encouraging for me to remember that the work we're doing with other white folk, with other people of privilege matters because it's going to help all of us in the long run to be a better part of society in the way that we think God wants it to be. It's amazing to me how um, when you, when you open your eyes uh, and, and work to understand the experience of people who are a different race than you, or at least, you know, be present to that and witness to that, that it impacts so much of the decisions you make. And so like Adam and I had a, a story of having Prescott in one school in kindergarten and not having it be the right fit. And so deciding to be a part of our neighborhood school, which is uh, not predominantly white at all, although there are other white kiddos there, and uh, how much our decision making and what we've noticed and what we're learning as being a part of this school um, is opening our eyes to um, the reality of race in our culture and what we can be a part of or help be helpful with and what we need to take a backseat to mm -hmm. <laughs> because we want to be a part of the solution. It's just amazing to me how often I have the opportunity to consider my race and my privilege in decision making that I didn't think would have anything to do with that. <laughs> so. One of the ways this couple decided to be proactive was to launch a book study. They decided to invite along for the ride anyone interested in reading, learning, and discerning what they could do to dismantle racism in their part of the world. Ashley explains how an online book club came about. So after the murder of George Floyd and the protests that came from that, uh, we were really um, feeling pretty desperate to know what we could do. 
And um, one thing that we had heard from professors and friends of ours who study this a lot more and are living this as people of color and black people, or that white people can and should have conversations with other white folk about how we are a part of the problem and can be a part of the solution. Instead of relying on black people or people of color um, to fix things or tell us how to do it like with three easy steps, we need to do the hard work of figuring out what our biases are and what we have within us that's holding us back from being anti-racist. So we kind of came up with this idea as we sat in our despair uh, not knowing what to do, that we wanted to reach out to people we know and love and have relationships with um, and ask them if they'd like to join us in a conversation. And one book that had been on our shelf for a while, but we hadn't read yet, was this book called Raising White Kids. And so we reached out to our Facebook world and just put it out on both of our pages so our church members and our pastor friends and everybody that we know could um, see it, but also people that we hadn't talked to in years and that we were connected to because of other seasons of our life and said, hey, we're going to do this thing on Zoom. We're going to read a couple chapters a week. We'd love for anyone to join us so we can continue to, to unearth what, how we were raised and what our culture has raised us with and then begin to relearn how to live as anti-racist. So we put it out there and suddenly we had a whole bunch of people who that struck a nerve with. And so we were grateful that we got to connect with friends from high school, college, seminary. We got to connect. I, my youth pastor that raised me up when I was in Wisconsin growing up as a little tween was in the group with us. There was an incredible uh, diversity of people from across the nation and from right here in the Great Plains that gathered to consider how we wanted to rethink the way that we care and raise children to be anti-racist in our world. They didn't stop there with a book study. As Adam mentioned earlier, the Neighboring Movement has a podcast titled The Neighbor Next Door, and that podcast is telling stories about life during COVID-19 and of dealing with racism. They also decided to draw people together yet again, this time by listening to and then discussing the NPR-based podcast Code Switch. Adam explains how this podcast study, which just started the week before this recording, works. The nice part about it is that it's um, because it's all based on a podcast. It's all weekly, you know, self-contained. And so if people wanted to jump in, they could listen to the episode and then come and join us for the conversation about it. Um, Code Switch is a podcast that uh, is currently put out through NPR. And Code Switch is, is a, a terminology that people use when they talk about um, having the moment where you have to change your behavior in the way that you talk, depending on the people that you're with. And so, uh, especially people of color have noticed that this happens if they're in a group of predominantly white people versus if they're in a group that uh, has, you know, people who match their own ethnicity, they will have a different vocabulary, a different tone of voice, different language. I think, you know, for us, like I, today as we were talking about it in the small group, the thing that came to mind is that many of clergy in the world talk about the pastor voice. We all have this pastor voice that we put on when we start to do something professional, when we start to preach or pray or whatever like that. And, and it's totally code switching in, in that kind of similar way. Um, and it, so it's, it's trying to wrestle with the, that term is the name of the podcast, but they wrestle with a whole bunch 
of different things that happen with um, race in America. And, and they take moments in popular culture, moments that are happening right now, and just talk about it a little bit more. It's all black and journalists and people of color, other, other races as well, um, who are journalists doing this work. Um, and you know, that episode we listened to this week was entitled, Why Now, White People? And it was asking basically the question of like, why does this moment after George Floyd bringing all of these white people into conversation when it didn't after Ferguson, it didn't, um, you know, and all of the other moments that we've experienced this, it didn't happen in the same way. So Ashley shares how continued learning helps prevent white people from pushing this anti-racism effort aside or further down the list of priorities. What I love about Code Switch is that it tells me the truth or helps me to better understand another person's experience or another culture's experience within our country without um, being a place where I get stuck in guilt and shame. And instead, it helps me propel forward to be persistent in my work to be anti-racist and to learn about new resources and ideas I've never thought of before. And we decided to do this thing because when we finished our conversation with our book, Raising White Kids, we realized we don't want this work to just be a quick and easy response to how bad we felt or how afraid we felt after the horrible racist things that have happened this summer. We want this to be a systemic and sustainable change in our own lives, as well as in the lives of the people that we're connecting with and have some influence with. Because we have real relationship and because we um, share our white skin and our privilege, we want to make sure that the ways that we relate are um, intentionally anti-racist. So how do we keep it going after this book club? Yeah. And so what happened was we said, well, we care about parenting, but we also know a lot of people who are not parents or are not thinking about parenting in this phase of their life. And so how can we open this up? So we're using the same format. We get on Zoom once a week and we have a homework assignment between where you listen to a podcast. And then we get in small groups and there's some questions that Adam and I curate about each episode uh, to kind of talk through what are we learning and what, um, what did that bring up for us? But not only that self-awareness and that learning piece, it also is a chance for us to talk with our people we're connected with and people we're learning about or meeting um, on how to uh, not just learn and be self-aware, but also to figure out how to act and how to change our behaviors. So it's not just about me being anti-racist within myself, but me impacting the people and the culture around me with the anti-racism that I'm convicted about. Yeah. So it's been exciting already to make those connections and uh, figure out how each of us, depending on our gifts and personalities, are going to try to do this work. Um, and it's been exciting to just learn from each other as we go. You can take part in the Code Switch podcast discussions on racial justice by signing up at any time. The website's a little bit lengthy, so I took the liberty of creating a tiny URL for it. It's https colon backslash backslash tinyurl.com slash code switch discussion. That's https colon backslash backslash tinyurl.com slash code switch discussion. So we've talked about learning, building relationships, and more related to racial justice. But what else can we do? Garlinda Burton from G Corps offers some tangible ideas. If, you know, does, this is a little thing, but it's a big thing. Do we pay our apportionments that go to global missions and go to our historically black colleges and go to our Hannah scholarship, which supports Hispanic 
Asian Pacific Islander and Native American people? Do we make sure that our new church start fund has sufficient funding and resources to plant churches in areas where there are people of color? Are we doing community ministries in partnership with people of color who also live in poverty? And do we, uh, you know, if, if there are people of color who are both people of color and live in poverty, do we do that kind of work? Are we partners at the school board to call on equity? So those things are very important to do the work, to continue to, to, to question our own biases, but also to be active in anti-racism. All of this talk about lack of equity, of oppression, of a total lack of fairness based on skin color, something nobody has any control over, is enough to make anyone feel really down. But remember, we serve a God of abundance. We have hope through the death of Jesus Christ, the non-white Son of God, on the cross, and His glorious resurrection. And we have the constant presence of the Holy Spirit. In closing, Kathy Williams has an uplifting message for all of us. I believe that the Holy Spirit is firmly at work and, I'll, and it will continue to make a way because I was reading in 1 Corinthians when it says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And I believe that um, God is revealing it to us through the power of the Holy Spirit each and every moment. And I can see the Spirit at work. long way to go, but at least we finally started on the journey. I ask that you please join me in continuing to read books, continuing to watch documentaries, and continually getting to know people not like ourselves as we do our part to usher in an anti-racist society in these United States and beyond. I want to say thank you to my guests, to Kathy Williams, one of the sweetest souls you'll ever encounter, to Garlinda Burton, a woman more than up to the challenge of leading the General Commission on Religion and Race, and to the Reverends Adam Barlow-Thompson and Ashley Prescott-Barlow-Thompson, who are doing such important work to train us all on how to be better neighbors. I also want to thank NBC News for use of the Martin Luther King Bootstraps interview excerpt. And of course, thanks to all of you, our listeners, for your interest in this subject and for your desire to be better servants of the risen Christ. Terms is a podcast sponsored by the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church and by me, your host, Todd Seifert. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go rate us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. It helps other people find us. And please, if you feel so inclined, share us on Facebook or other social media. Our music comes via a licensed subscription with FirstCom Music. You can find archived podcasts on my website, toddseifert.com, or via a link on the conference website, greatplainsumc.org slash podcasts. Feel free to email me any questions or suggestions to tcypher at greatplainsumc.org, and I'll do my best to respond as quickly as possible. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, please do what you can to help make more disciples of Jesus Christ. You can play a small part in helping change a life.